You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. What we're saying by Seculus is this, and this is how David Zoll in his book talks about it. He says, religious observance hasn't observance hasn't faded a pace secularization so much as migrated and we've got the anxiety to prove it we're seldom not in church in other words people aren't coming to church on Sundays necessarily but they're in church all the time because everything has taken on now religious significance okay we now worship at our stadiums in the gym, at the grocery store, at work, through our smartphones, in all our relationships. We now practice various religions of romance and busyness and politics and consumerism and escapism. Even parenting can become a religion for some. I don't know if you've seen that. When all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're using this method? I mean, this is the only method you can to raise this child. Oh, my goodness. Zealots, right? Right. You'll find people in our society wrapping up their identity and their schedules in things like diet or politics or sports or fitness or leisure or technology. Everything is about this in their lives. So we are focusing on only four areas. Last week, he talked about the religion of busyness, that it has become now, in a sense, a, um, a measure of your enoughness. Does that make sense? Like, if you're busy, then you must have enough going on. If you have enough going on, then you are worthy. If you're not busy, you're not really that important. Isn't that fascinating? Now, um, one of our um, friends here came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I'm retired. That doesn't even uh, impact me at all. And I understand that to a large extent, except for the fact that I'm glad you, as being retired, may not have the busy schedule and that sense of push and drive to fill it with all sorts of things. Praise God you've got that. But the rest of the world is looking at you and judging your worth based on your schedule. And haven't you felt that way? You kind of, oh, you're ki- you, you don't have, what? That's a problem. You know, another, um, so we, we, we went into this all last week. One thing I do want to bring up that I didn't mention is sometimes you just have to stop. You just have to stop and put into your schedule a time to do nothing but commune with God. And when you don't have that margin in life, when you don't have that time on a daily basis, no wonder your schedule just seems like it's going from one blasted thing after another. And after a while, you just get to the end of the day exhausted. So I just kind of urge you to consider what time you can spend, not just Sunday morning for an hour, but what time you can spend during the week for 10 minutes here or there to just rest and let God be God and read his word and pour out your heart to him and let him minister to you. That's going to make a huge difference. Um, So today, we're going to focus on um, the second religion or secularist area called romance. Okay. 
Now, the question is, how did this become kind of a thing that people are pursuing so much? Okay? Why have secular things become functioning like they're religions for people? And I think it really comes down to this. I know this. Uh, bear with me for a moment. Um, I think a lot of people have lost hope. Hope beyond the here and now. Okay? To put it simply, they're not looking forward to anything. It's not like, oh, in 10 years from now, or in 20 years from now, or I've got this future before me. All I know is what I've got right now and what I need right now. Hans Schwartz wrote a book called Eschatology, and in it he said this, we live in an apocalyptic age. An apocalyptic age is a period in which we presume to be close enough to the end of history that we can discern which unalterable course it will take. But since we live, however, in a largely secularized age, the horizon of hope is restricted to the possibilities of this world. And like a scholar, big words, all that stuff. The point is this. You know, and a lot of people are afraid, the world's going to blow up, fall apart, warm up, fall into civil war, be wiped out by a comet or some nuclear disaster or some pandemic. But at the same time, they don't know that there's anything that could stop it or anything divine or beyond that would be able to intervene and make any difference in all of that. And all we've got is what we got right now, what we can touch, taste, see, smell, feel at the moment. So eat your dessert first. Life is unpredictable. You only live once. All you've got is today. All of that sentimentality runs through. And when you think it's all got to be here and now, whoo, then of course things that used to be good tend to be ultimate. And you've got to have it at the moment. So today, we're going to learn what hope really is and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and how revolutionary that was for the early church, for Paul's period of time, for the people in Corinth, as well as today, and how it can impact in a positive way our areas of romance, marriage, and even being single, and how God will use all of those things to his glory. Now, one thing I have to uh, explain at the beginning, when, when we use the word hope in our English language, you know, it's really wimpy. Have you ever noticed that? Hope becomes, I hope so, hope. Hope becomes um, kind of blind optimism without any certainty. You know, I'm just hoping things turn out. Wishful thinking. That is that not at all when the Bible talks about hope. It is very concrete. It is very specific. It is very certain. And I think this is the best definition I've seen. It's from Timothy Keller. He spoke and said it this way. The biblical understanding of hope is life-shaping, joyous certainty that your future is in the eternal love and glory of God in a new heaven and a new earth. You know, you got that. Just think about that. You've got that. Isn't that going to impact everything in your life? and how you see it, that hope changes everything. And the world doesn't have that kind of hope. 
They don't have the hope that we have. They only see the part of the story they're in right now. They only see the middle of the story. They can't figure out what happened at the beginning, where they came from, and they don't know where they're going. They don't have that end. But when you see yourself and your life, wherever it is right now in this grand story of God's plan from the beginning of this entire cosmos, that in love he predestined us from the beginning, it says in Ephesians, that, and that God chose us before the foundation of this world, that, that's the beginning, that in the middle he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to rise from the dead, to give us new life, that the end goal of the entire universe is that we will be in direct, complete fellowship with the loving God forever. When you are able to place your story, wherever you are at the moment, in God's grand story, the great narrative of what this all is about, that changes everything today. So we're going to read now. Um, I think Paul is doing that with all the wonderful problems that the Corinthian church had. They were a mess. They had a lot of difficulties. And in the midst of the difficulties, he talks to them about things like marriage and singleness and their status in life and where they were at and how they're supposed to live. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about um, this perspective of hope in our most intimate relationships. He writes, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So we're going to learn two alternatives. One I've already kind of talked about a bit. We're going to describe it a little more. And the one alternative that Paul is promoting here for the Corinthians and for us. First of all, we're going to learn about what it means to live in the now or for the now. And that's what we see in our society right now, in this secular society. It's all about now. Then we're going to look at living in the now for the not yet. Okay? So living in the now. Now, you notice in this, Paul is saying, so some people were married in Corinth and they were looking to get out. And other people were single and they wanted to get in. They were not happy in the now where they were. Some probably said, hey, this marriage doesn't seem fulfilling to me. I need to find right now, I need to find my satisfaction, my fulfillment. And this one ain't working. It's time to get out. And others were saying, oh, I'm single and I just don't like this. And I want to get to I need it right now, this fullness in life, and I need it. And romance became kind of like the brass ring that they were grabbing for. I think Corinth is mild compared to our society today. And people are looking to find life's fulfillment in another person. And if they don't, they want to get out and find it somewhere else. And if they are single, they want to find it, and they keep looking until they find the perfect person. Did any of you marry the perfect person? No. <laughs> he, uh, 
Brooke, did you marry the perfect person? I see you did not raise your hand. I yes, I married the perfect. Yeah. There's one perfect person, sorry. It's not your spouse. Okay. I know. We're talking about this right before the big grand festival celebration of Valentine's Day, where romance is elevated to, well, it's a marketing ploy, right? <laughs> How did we ever get to where a Valentine's Day card is like five bucks? Eight bucks. I guess you know I didn't buy one last year. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is what Chris Rock said. I love this, because I think a lot of people feel this way. Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people feel. Because what they're looking at is, I need it now, and if I don't get it out of you, well, I better find it somewhere else. Do you get that? And so if I ever am bored, it's because you bored me. <laughs> huh. I've told my kids many times, if you're bored, it might be because you're boring. Not, there's plenty to do. Use your imagination. <laughs> you don't have to have a device in front of you all the time entertaining you. Um, Ernest Becker wrote this book, which is, <laughs> I'm sorry, the title is The Denial of Death. Okay, it won a Pulitzer Prize. It's kind of like the denial of death is, <laughs> is about as much of a downer as the title sounds like, okay? But in it, he says that basically our society has never been like any other society on planet Earth since the beginning of time. We are the most secular society that has ever existed. That is, there are more people today in America and in Europe, in Western civilization, that believe when you die, you're dead. There is no afterlife. There is nothing. When your body rots in the grave, there is no consciousness that keeps going. I don't know if you realize, a lot of people believe that. And so all they've got in front of them is the now, is the moment, because there is nothing to look forward to, okay? And he said, never has a society, therefore, because if a human being is only just like any other animal on this planet, never has any society devalued human life so much as ours. And because of that, he predicted years ago when he wrote this book, there would be a boom in the whole, quote, romance, wedding department, and expectations of finding your soulmate, your one true love. Because that will replace anything else. So he writes this, modern man edged himself into an impossible situation. He still needed to feel heroic to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to be specially good for something, truly special. Also, he still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner became the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. 
So we're looking to this person to complete me, like Jerry Maguire. (laughs) If you don't have it in your marriage, then you want to find it somewhere else. If you're single, you're still looking for it, and until you find the person who's going to complete you. The problem with that, do you understand what the problem is? No human being can meet your expectations. Esther uh, Peril is a uh, psychologist and marriage counselor, and she, um, she wrote it this way. She says, we come to one person, we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, give me transcendence and mystery and awe, all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, and give me surprise. <laughs> now, I would say with... Uh, Uh, that Esther is not a village. We're trying to say, you know what, we look to God for these things. We're now looking to a human being for these things. What you're really trying to do is a lot of people today are trying to marry a savior. And I'm sorry, there's only one person that looked good on that piece of wood and could carry the weight of your life on his back. And it isn't your spouse. It isn't any other human being. Paul says in this passage, I don't know if you saw it, I know it's kind of a weird, and I know Paul was single, he never married, so you might think he's really anti-marriage, and maybe this sermon is coming, please understand this is one sermon, I should probably do a whole series on marriage and the family in some way, Um, and some of you say no, please don't. And and please understand, I'm not coming as an expert, I'm coming as a, One broken person married to a very, almost a perfect person. (laughs) I I am amazed. I I can't believe how God has gifted me with my wife because I didn't know half of what I do now. She's been amazing. She's put up with me, you know? But anyway, um, Paul says when you get married, he said, you're going to have worldly troubles. Did you see that in that text? Right? And if you think some ideal marriage, you're going to marry the right person, you have to realize you never do. Stanley Hauerwas said it well. He said this, destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look close enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Have you ever thought of that? Um, I think it was um, Lewis Smedes who said, my wife has been married to five different men, and it happens to be me. (laughs) That over time, he had changed so much. She was putting up with somebody who had different ideas and perspectives all the way through. And 
So you think you marry this person, you end up with somebody else. You go like, wait a minute, I thought we both agreed on that. I mean, those are in the small things, right? So some people say, hey, let's just stay out of marriage altogether because that's a lot easier, you know? And um, they don't realize the hookup culture that's going on today is just another form of performancism. You know, that you might, you're looking for intimacy, but all you're getting is intensity of feelings for a short time. You're not, you, and you're only as good as you perform in whatever relationship you have. Outside of the marriage vows, there's no such thing as this long, I'm going to be with you no matter what. You're never sure what the other, if the other person will stay because, well, how do you know? And you might even be the one who leaves, using other people to satisfy your appetites without any obligation or commitment is no way to have any relationship. And it even goes against the whole idea of what love is. Do you realize that? That's not love. That's self-contradictory. Love isn't about how you feel. Love is a promise you enter into even when, uh, that you are going to love even when you don't feel. You know, everybody, I think, who's been in any friendship or relationship knows there are times you don't feel like being a friend. You don't feel like this person is great. For, for every parent out there, <laughs> you don't feel loving at 2 in the morning when your child is vomiting on the bathroom floor, but you love anyway. Right? Love is a promise to love when you don't feel it, and that's the foundation. I think it was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said it this way. Uh, when he was imprisoned, he wrote a letter to some uh, friends of his who were getting married, and he said, your love does not sustain your marriage. Your marriage is going to sustain your love. Okay? So the pursuit of self-gratification, self-fulfillment as a basis of any relationship is really self-destructive. And I don't know if you realize that or not. So David Zoll says, long story short, pursuing love in an atmosphere of acute seculosity seems to preclude love being found at all. So the Christians in Corinth were just expressing and reflecting the culture around them, the self-fulfillment, it's all about me, and I'm just using you to get more of me and feeling good and complete in myself. And if marriage is hard, hey, maybe I should get out of it. I should be free in Jesus Christ, whatever that means. And if I'm single, hey, maybe I should get, I'm always looking for something to get fulfilled now. And Paul says that is no way to live because you are not just about the now. You are in the grand story of what God has for you from the beginning, before time, before you even thought a thought, God thought of you. And even when you are not thinking about God now, he is still thinking about you and has you in his plans. And even if you can't imagine that God has something exceeding abundantly beyond all, you can ask or imagine for you in your future. And because of that, you can be single, and fulfilled now, married and fulfilled now, because what fills you is not your status, but your God. So he talks about how to live in the now for the not yet. 
And so he says in 1 Corinthians 7, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, you probably read that and go like me, and it sounds almost like a Zen Buddhist cone. What is the sound of one hand slapping? And you're going like, what does he mean to be married and yet act like you're not married and to not mourn but be mourning? And what is this? Do you understand? It seems like a contradiction, but he's really talking about and saying this. Don't invest your ultimate hopes into your possessions, into your status as single or married, into the pleasures of this world. If you do it'll all fall apart. It'll slip through your fingers. But instead, your singleness does not define who you are. Your life is a much grander and greater narrative and story than anything that is happening at this moment in time. Now, what's interesting, um, some people will say, oh yeah, this just shows Paul was wrong. Paul thought Jesus was going to come again before he ever died. And all the Christians in the early church, you know, there are some theories out there that say, oh, they believed Jesus was coming in 10 or 20 years at the best, and they'd be alive before. And so, of course, they were going to live anticipating Jesus returning immediately. And see, they're wrong. So how do we, but I don't think they've really read the text, if that's what they think. Because Paul does not say in this text, for the present form of this world will pass away soon. He says this, 1 Corinthians 7.31, for the present form of this world is passing away. That makes a huge difference. He said, we live in the overlap of two ages. The world as it is, is passing away. And in, because of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection has opened up the kingdom of God. It is actually active in this world. That is the one that will last. The kingdom of God's love and promises and forgiveness and grace. And in the midst of a world that is passing away, God's kingdom is right now being established, and one day it will be seen. It is now here, but it's not yet fully realized. And to live then in this world with the realization, don't live for this world. Since this world is passing away, don't live for that which is temporary that's going to fall apart. Live instead for the permanent. Anything that is based in this world on self-centeredness and self-acquisition and pride and greed and power games and violence, those things are all passing away. They will never last. They're falling apart, even as we speak. If you're going to live, live for the things that will last forever, for love, for joy, for peace, for patience, for kindness, for humility, for self-control. Live for what God is establishing in his kingdom. Live for his glory. Live for not what you can get out of, but what you can give. 
Husbands, then, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Live for how you can contribute in this world. If you're single, God will fulfill you and will use you fully. It was so radical of Paul in his day in traditional cultures where they idolized the family and basically set it up as the end-all and be-all that Paul would say, hey, if you're single, that's no problem. In fact, God's going to bless you. You don't have to get married to be somebody. You are somebody because you are already a child of God. You are already a princess or a prince. You are already royalty. You already have an identity. You already are everything that God wants you to be. And he's got a plan for you, glorious, and a future before you. It's not about your status. It's not about what the world says. It's not about any of those things. It is about your God. Don't look to gain from another person what only God can give you. Some people wonder why they can't find a soulmate. You might wonder why you can't get from your spouse what you need. Are you looking for what only God can give from another human being? Now, I'm not saying, you know, husbands, don't worry about loving your wives or anything because God's going to take care of that. He's there, you know, and wives, eh, who cares, you know, whatever. That is not what I am saying at all. I'm not devaluing the gift of marriage, but I am understanding it in God's order. I think it was St. Augustine that said that most sins, he said sin is not like doing the wrong thing. He said sin is usually having things out of order in your life. So in, you place like this relationship above God, that's going to be a problem. You place money or career above God, that's going to be a problem. You have God seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else starts to fall in line. That's what we're really talking about here. No, and what I'm really saying is your soulmate found you. Do you get that? Your soulmate has found you. He came searching for you. He chose you before you were you. He would have nothing less than you. There is a reason why the New Testament uses the metaphor of a bride and, his, and her groom for Jesus and the church. And how often it talks about how the bride is awaiting the groom and the groom is coming and preparing everything for that consummation. And that's the not yet that we are still waiting for. He is the ultimate true love. Not because um, we were infatuated with him, but he was head over heels in love with us. Ephesians 5.2 says it this way, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he has sacrificed all to have you, to promise his life, his future. God does not see his future without you. Do you recognize that? He has chosen that you are his future. And whatever that means, he will bring you th through it. He will be there for it because he will not have, he has chosen not to have a future without you in it. Isn't that amazing? 
talk about a one true love. And he loved me not because I'm so lovable. No, what happened is he's loved me and I am becoming lovable. You can only, I think, have a great or be a great marriage partner if you have first received the love of God in Jesus Christ. The love for you. Because when you have found your ultimate need for validation, for significance, for identity, when you have found the source of your forgiveness and the source of your love in Jesus Christ, then when your spouse needs you, you can be there for your spouse. Because you are not looking to your spouse for what only God can give. Then you can give yourself completely to your spouse when your spouse is in need. You can open up and be vulnerable. You can forgive and be forgiven, and you can cherish marriage as God's gift. Timothy Keller writes it this way, marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. Those who turn to romance into a religion are never going to be able to do that because they're still always seeking to be complete by someone who can't do it. And they're always looking for something from someone rather than from God. But when you first give yourself to Jesus Christ, then you can give yourself to another. So Timothy Keller says, do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus and the rest will follow. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, John, I'm single. I may never marry. What about me? And I'm going to tell you, I remember <laughs> I, um, I was single till I was 35. And um, I remember being 29, almost turning 30. I was at LSU in Baton Rouge and driving in my car. And I can still remember the conversation I was having with myself about that and thinking, huh. I may grow old alone. And um, I realized I might be single the rest of my life. And it can be tough and it can be lonely. And that's why we as the Christian church need to get over a lot of this stuff and figure out and to welcome anybody in whatever state they are in, if they are previously married, to welcome them. If they are single and have never married, to welcome them and to be the family for them, to be the kind of friends that Jesus Christ, how he has befriended and loved us, that we treat each other and care for each other in that way. We've got to be the community because we're going to be the community. Do you realize we're going to be that community for eternity? You better start loving me now because you're going to be stuck with me forever. <laughs> And I need to be doing the same. And whether you, whatever state in life you are, you've got this future before you. This is how Paul says it. It's not about being single or married or happy or unhappy or doing this or doing that. He says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. Do you see that word anyone? What does it mean? It means anyone. <laughs> he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are living in that new age. You are living in the present now, in the world that is passing away. The whole system of greed and violence and power that is passing away. But you're living for the world that is permanent and has been established because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that world is glorious. And you will be glorious too. 
I like how uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's your future. It's time to live in that, to live in the now and the not yet, and to anticipate what God has for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Um, thank you for this family. I pray, Lord, that we at Thrive become such a family, so open and caring and loving, that no matter the status, no matter the situation, we are here to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We are here to... Um, be your hands and feet, your ears, your eyes to see, your heart to love for one another. Lord, for all those who are struggling with dissatisfactions in life, who have tried to find in the now something that's not quite working, give them your peace right now, Lord God. Show them your purpose, your destiny, your identity for them, that you have loved them with an everlasting love. You've loved them before they were born, you chose them before the foundation of the world, that you are walking with them and you are bringing to completion the work you've started in them. Thank you, Lord. Keep working in us this hope that we live in that certainty of what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.